The following podcast was recorded in 2022 and is now being released for the public. Thought leadership, titles, current events, legislation, and technology may have changed and evolved since it was originally recorded. We have seen some success in preventing Iran from using the international financial system in commercial markets. Through the use of sanctions, we've impacted Iran's ability to generate revenue through oil sales and other actions that support its nuclear and ballistic missile proliferation, as well as terrorist activities. Our sanctions, plus those imposed by the international community, uh, were actually what pushed Iran to the table on its nuclear program back in 2015 when the original JCPOA was negotiated. The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart Podcast. I am your host, Jane Doe. For this episode, Manoli Priniotakis had the opportunity to speak with Assistant Secretary for OIA, Shannon Corliss. Prior to joining the Department of Treasury, Ms. Corliss was an accomplished member of the Senior National Intelligence Service at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, where she served for over 15 years. Ms. Corliss held management positions at the ODNI, supporting the highest levels of government, including serving as the intelligence community's first economic security and financial intelligence executive. In this role, she directed and oversaw national intelligence activities, led engagements with foreign governments and private sector partners to collaborate on issues of shared concern, and coordinated IC efforts on economic security and financial intelligence threats. Prior to her selection to lead, Ms. Corliss served as the Director of National Intelligence Council's Investment Security Group, overseeing multi-agency intelligence assessments in support of U.S. government-led investment security reviews. So I'm very pleased to be joined for this episode of Intelligence Jumpstart by Shannon Corliss, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Intelligence and Analysis. Uh, We've known each other for some time now, and I'm very, very pleased to be able to say, Assistant Secretary Corliss, welcome to NIU's Intelligence Jumpstart. Thank you very much, Manoli. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's funny how our careers have woven through time. Absolutely. So let's start by talking a bit about your professional journey. I understand you're originally from Tampa, which has a substantial national security presence. Uh, How did your career path develop, especially given those roots? I'd be delighted. You know, it's interesting. I never really had a chance to, or a reason to give my career path much thought until my appointment to the role that I'm in now and my need to prepare opening remarks for my confirmation hearing. So the story that I'll tell here is very similar to what I shared then. So yes, I grew up in Tampa, quite literally minutes from McDill Air Force Base, and my father actually spent his career as a broadcast journalist, mostly as an anchor for the NBC affiliate there. So I'm dating myself a little bit now, but I vividly remember watching my father report daily on Operation Desert Storm back in 1991, and I was about 13 years old at the time. The conflict and my father's role in reporting it led to many conversations about the history of service in my family. This included my great-grandfather's service in World War I, both of my grandfathers serving in World War II and the Korean War, and of course, my great-uncle, Colonel Robert Montel, who spent over 30 years in the Army. 
He served in a variety of special forces roles and posts, including as the commander of the 5th Special Forces Group. And I think he truly was my inspiration to pursue a career in national security and specifically the field of intelligence. He readily indulged and encouraged my interest as a, as a child and as a young adult. As for my start in the IC, I actually started out as an intern, and to this day, I have a very soft spot for the IC's internship programs. I went to Florida State University where I majored in international affairs and I minored in economics. And during both of my sophomore and junior summers, I had the amazing opportunity to intern at the Office of Naval Intelligence. After I completed graduate school at the University of Tampa where I got my MBA, I returned to work at ONI full-time in October of 2001, which as many can probably guess was just about three weeks after 9-11. While I was at ONI, I was an all-source analyst primarily focusing on South Asia. I had an opportunity about a year and a half after I started to do a, a tour on the watch floor at the Pentagon at the Chief of Naval Operations Intelligence Plot, otherwise fondly known as CNOIP. But that's notable because that was an area of the Pentagon that was hit on 9-11 and lost nine folks who were working there that day, including Angie Houts, who was a civilian analyst that I'd worked with as an intern. About five years after I joined ONI, I had the opportunity to go on a joint duty assignment to the National Intelligence Council to be a junior analyst supporting a new group created to support Treasury's Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, otherwise known as CFIUS. And that's a committee that looks at national security concerns that might arise as a result of a foreign investment coming into the U.S. And frankly, I liked it so much that I stayed. It was just a fascinating mashup of my longtime interest in intelligence as well as my educational background. I spent many years on the CFIUS topic where I got to know Treasury intimately and the rest of the interagency very well. And eventually I had the opportunity at ODNI to serve as the IC's first executive for economic security and financial intelligence. But it was in this role that I was responsible for ensuring that the IC had the resources as well as the right analytic collection requirements in place to support IC and policy customers on issues such as CFIUS reviews, export controls, telecommunications, sanctions implementation, and the rise of digital assets. Yeah, I think it was on the CFIUS context that our paths first crossed probably, gosh, more than maybe close to 18 years ago or so. That's right. Uh, and I remember uh, I was at DOE at the time, and it was effectively something new for us as well, but we uh, we appreciated your work in, in guiding us through how to best approach a, a complicated subject where the I see intersects with policy and domestic companies. So now you're in this job as Assistant Secretary at OIA. Can you talk a little bit about the position and what some of your goals are and, and how the position leading Treasury's Intel efforts works? Absolutely. So as the Assistant Secretary, my job is to lead a full-fledged member of the IC. OIA is one of the IC's smallest elements, but it has all the bells and whistles that any other IC element does. It has an analytic function that is core to what OIA does. It has a reports team, but probably less well-known is the fact that it has a security and counterintelligence team. It has human capital functions, and it's also responsible for managing the high side, the top secret network for the whole department, including the accounts that our senior leadership, such as our secretary and deputy secretary and others use throughout the department. Which brings me to an interesting point. When most people think of OIA, they think of it in the context of sanction support and countering illicit finance, which is undoubtedly a huge portion of what we do. But what most people do not realize is that much like we provide the high side IT capabilities for the department, we are also responsible for security and counterintelligence functions for the whole department, including bureaus like the IRS, Bureau of Fiscal Services, and more. So it's a huge mandate and one that will only continue to grow in importance as Treasury's national security mandate grows. As for my goals, 
I'm just a little over uh, halfway into my first year on the job. I feel like I have a pretty decent understanding and appreciation of the strengths of OIA, areas where it is vulnerable and areas where we need to focus more time and energy on. I'm pretty sure my goals will evolve over time, but at a minimum, I think I would put forward three that are particularly important to me right now. First is ensuring that we are effectively utilizing available resources to retain and to recruit a diverse staff, particularly to support efforts countering China, Russia, sanction support, as well as the overall security of the department. Second is developing a strong analytic outreach program, particularly with the financial sector, and also looking for opportunities to invest in commercial data. Between those two efforts, the engagement with the financial sector and investment in commercial data, my hope is that we can augment the best of the IC's capabilities with expertise and insight that is resonant only in the financial sector. As you can imagine, this is a pretty tough sector to recruit from because of the vast differences in pay. So building this, per this partnership is going to be crucial to OIA's success. And then finally, I hope to foster a culture of trust and innovation. I love seeing folks come up with ideas for how to do something new, how to do something better. And frankly, some of the most thrilling seminal moments in my career have been those moments where I worked on teams, where I witnessed teams, where there was deep trust. And those were the teams where the ideas truly thrived. Some ideas were great and turned into something. Many ideas did not, but having that trusting environment was key to working through these ideas. As OIA's mandate grows, it will need to innovate in order to ensure that it is able to keep up with the department's growing requirements. And so my hope is to do what I can to foster that culture of innovation and trust. You mentioned the disparities in pay and some of the challenges potentially even on recruiting individuals to work in the IC on these topics. Uh, when I first came to NIU, I spent some time looking at how the IC deals with economics issues and talked to people on Wall Street. And it was interesting. At first, they basically balked at the pay. But then once, you know, within the bounds of what I could talk about, they learned a little bit about the work. The, the view sort of softened and they they were, you know, fascinated with the possibilities of of being able to be engaged in, in national security as it relates to economics and finance. So I just want to explore a little bit. One of the things that you did talk about is sort of Treasury's broader role in, it has a broad mandate in domestic and international economic policymaking. And I think some people maybe have got some exposure to it from Juan Zarate's book, Treasury's War, from more than a, almost a decade ago now. Obviously, that is somewhat dated in it because it covers the years prior to that. But I think it would be useful to get a little bit of a better sense of Treasury's wide-ranging mandate as it relates to domestic and international economic policymaking. Absolutely. And I think your reference to Juan's book is a good one because it is definitely a highly recommended book. It was one that I found to be very useful to read as I was preparing to come into the role. Because I think something that's important to understand is that OIA was born as a result of 9-11. And that was sort of the framing for what OIA does, but our work has expanded quite a bit. We're now involved in intelligence support for all of the national securities that the department is involved in. We provide analysis and insight on a wide range of topics from countering road regimes to encouraging financial sector resilience. Even non-traditional economic threats like climate change are now big areas of focus for OIA. We do touch on investment security related issues, so that could be a broad range of things such as support to CFIUS, and then also supply chain issues as well, too, which is another growing area of focus for the department, as well as other departments and agencies across uh, the government. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how does OIA then fit into that? How OIA fits into that conversation is 
we work very closely to understand what our policymakers, our policymakers' requirements are, what the issues and decisions are that they are facing. Using a sanctions example, we will work with OFAC and others across the department to understand what's what targets they may be considering going after. And then we'll work with them to, to ensure that they have the best information available about those targets. And then also our perspectives on the impact of the sanctions on those targets. You just talked about working within Treasury with partners and other offices that have a connection to national security work, in particular OFAC, which is, I believe, the Office of Foreign Assets Control. Can you tell a little bit more about how you work across uh, community boundaries to other IC partners or even with foreign partners? Absolutely. It should go without saying that OIA constantly works with our IC partners to ensure that the department has the very best intelligence and expertise possible on the issues of concern that they are dealing with. As I mentioned earlier on, we are a very small IC organization with a very niche focus, so we cannot do our work successfully without close collaboration across the community. Our joint efforts with interagency partners across the IC allows us to author joint intelligence assessments, and those will be ones that we will publish internally within Treasury, as well as more well-known products like the President's Daily Brief. Uh, we also work with these partners to expand and tailor intelligence collection to meet Treasury's needs, and we engage with foreign partners to disrupt illicit financing schemes around the globe. You mentioned a couple of times you've mentioned sanctions. And over the last several years, there's been a tremendous amount of discussion in think tank and academic circles about the various tools the U.S. government has at its disposal. Uh, in particular, a lot of discussion of what's starting to become known uh, or coalescing around the concept of economic statecraft, trade measures, you know, foreign aid, especially sanctions. But it's probably likely that very few people understand the process that goes actually into sanctions. You mentioned some of the information support that you may provide to organizations that actually in, implement the sanctions at Treasury. But are you able to walk us through a sanctions example, um, sort of how the process works and, and where Treasury actually takes action? I'm Manoli Perniotakis, and I use Vice President for Research and Infrastructure. And this is this episode's Manoli Minute. The next episode features NIU's own Dr. Deborah Pfaff on the privatization of space. That's, of course, the present and future of space, and it will undoubtedly be a fascinating future. I'm personally not a huge fan of science fiction, other than the classics, of course, but I do find the planetary politics and relationships in the expanse to be a convincing look at the future, even if the technology underpinning it all is still some, uh, let's say, some time off. Uh, it is, of course, always interesting to look at the IC's past in space, too. In 1995, CIA published an internal comprehensive history of the Corona program, which it subtitled America's First Satellite Program. Corona was designed to pick up where the U-2 left off, or to be more precise, was never truly able to operate over Soviet territory. Since declassified and available from CIA's website, the volume tells the story of the technical challenges and achievements of the program, to include a description of perhaps the most remarkable aspect of the program in its early days, the system of recovering film from the satellites via drop-and-catch method. The book starts with a republishing of a 1973 article on studies and intelligence on Corona, and the story is probably known to many of the listeners of this podcast, but it's worth recounting. As the author writes, the primary recovery technique involved flying an airplane across the top of the descending parachute, catching the chute or its shrouds, and a trapeze-like hook suspended beneath the airplane and then winching the recovery vehicle aboard. 
while they were still building the satellite, they began tests of the air recovery technique with what was described in the article as disheartening results. For one kind of shoot, only 49 of 74 were recovered. For another, it was 4 of 15. The biggest problem was the drop rate of the shoots. They had to get from 33 feet per second to about 20 feet per second so that the aircraft could make multiple passes. They did eventually develop a parachute with a slow enough sink rate. All that said, the recovery vehicle was also designed to float long enough that if the catch failed, it was possible to do a water recovery by a helicopter launched from a surface vessel nearby. There's a fascinating piece of an extraordinarily important and expensive program that had a huge impact on U.S. intelligence capabilities. Sure, absolutely. Obviously, OIA plays a key role in the rollout of sanctions. So I'll do my best to try and highlight two ways um, that we have played a role in the context of the war in Russia. The first is to understand policymaker questions and the resources at our disposal for answering these questions. Our all-source analysts are very skilled at using a variety of sources to conduct research and make assessments, and our particular niche is understanding the economic and financial landscape which is very important when developing and implementing uh, sanctions. In seeking to answer questions coming from our policy counterparts as they're contemplating sanctions against, say, a Russian individual or, or company, our analysts may also reach out to specialists across the IC, experts on energy, leadership issues, or military readiness. Our analysts are trained to answer both tactical and strategic level questions, Obviously, I can't get into specifics with a uh, with this audience, but I would say that a typical ask for us is regarding what kind of impact certain sanctions actions will have. Second, one of our key roles is to understand policymaker needs to have in a form that can be shared with an external audience, including the financial financial sector, private sector audiences, as well as foreign governments. Sanctions actions require that information actually be shared publicly. So this work to make intelligence information shareable falls with our foreign disclosure office. And of course, foreign disclosure decisions involve balancing national security needs with the immediate needs of our senior policymakers. And so as you can imagine, that's a pretty delicate balance to achieve. And then finally, I think I'd like to note too that OIA is much like state's Bureau of Intelligence and Research and your original home agency, DOE's Office of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, and what I mean by that is that we are unlike ODNI and CIA from the standpoint of being independent IC agencies. They do not have a policy parent that they report to. OIA, like the other two I mentioned, is uh, an intelligence element that is housed within a policy forming department. And so we pride ourselves on, the, uh, on our understanding and responsiveness to the department's information needs. And I, I think it's worth noting that our team is very proud to be a part of the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence and its team of, quote, nerd warriors, as the CNN article referred to us back in June. Well, I can attest to past experience working with OIA. I never failed to be impressed with the people I connected with. And you may not know this, but while I served as Chief of Staff at DOEIN for many years, one of the things they used to do on a regular basis was to have a regular lunch, usually every few months, with the chief of staff of INR and person who's effectively in the executive assistant role to, or, or the equivalent chief of staff position, 
supporting you. We used to meet every few months at a rotating place around DC just to sort of compare notes. And we had so much in common that we sort of look at things that were happening across the community from personnel actions to the Hill, just to understand how it was impacting each of us. And that was one of the great benefits I, I know I got from my position was really understanding similar agencies and, and what was happening with them and, and sort of their shared experiences. And very directly, you have some very good people, particularly in HR, who helped us through some very tricky things maybe about a decade or, or so ago. It's always, it was a great pleasure to work with people from OIA. I do want to delve a little bit a little bit more deeply into one aspect of the sanctions that you mentioned. Uh, in particular, this relates to my background with the Department of Energy. So weapons proliferation, WMD in particular, but uh, even potentially conventional weapons proliferation. And it's an interesting intersection between intelligence and economics. How do you see sanctions fitting into that issue, in particular impacting the flow of illicit weapons? among foreign actors? That's a really great question. And I think it's it's one that will um, hopefully be helpful to those who are listening to understand uh, the role that sanctions plays. So like all sanctions programs, measuring success uh, can be difficult. However, we tried to address just this type of question last year when the department took a top to bottom review of the, the effectiveness of treasury sanctions programs. And it's actually a report that can be found on Treasury's public website for, for anyone who's interested. So one anecdote to bring up in this context is that we have seen some success in preventing Iran from using the international financial system and commercial markets. Through the use of sanctions, we've impacted Iran's ability to generate revenue through oil sales and other actions that support its nuclear and ballistic missile proliferation, as well as terrorist activities. Our sanctions, plus those imposed by the international community, uh, were actually what pushed Iran to the table on its nuclear program back in 2015 when the original JCPOA was negotiated. In the Iran context, our OIA officers played a critical role in building this financial pressure over the years by supporting the designation of technology of its technology and financial sector. But generally, on programs targeting Iran, plus North Korea and Syria WMD programs, we work very closely with our partners in the larger Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence to make sure that the best possible information is brought to bear against malign actors across all sanctions programs so that we can get the best intended policy outcome. And I also think it's it's critical to note too that uh, collaboration with our foreign partners on these sanctions actions is, is key. Early on in the discussion, you mentioned OIA's role in you know, broad efforts to support the agency in particular on counterintelligence and security. In 2020, the Russian government launched uh, a number of attacks that impacted agencies across the government. And I think people oftentimes think about intelligence agencies, DOD, state as being the primary targets, but the reality is they're pretty equal opportunity when it comes to looking across the government to, uh, to take advantage of campaigns against the U.S. national security. So a lot of organizations were impacted by the attack, including Treasury. Uh, so what were some of the implications of that period? That's a great question. And I think the angle that I'll come at this was really looking at um, the impact of the, the Russian hack against uh, solar winds. When I 
arrived at Treasury, I got an opportunity to ask questions that I was always curious about from the outside because that attack happened uh, well before my arrival. And so I was very keen to understand what the impact of the solar winds compromise on Treasury was, what mitigation measures were taking, and what investments the department was making to prevent additional intrusions. So it's interesting that from a counterintelligence perspective, we tend to think about the adversary seeking access to classified information when indeed unclassified information such as policy deliberations on economic decision making or potential sanctions is such a treasure trove for foreign intelligence services. And so protecting unclassified agency information must remain just as much a priority as countering attempts to access classified information. And from what I have observed since I have arrived at Treasury, that still indeed remains a top priority and probably grows every day. When Treasury was made aware of solar winds of the incident back in December of 2020, the department immediately implemented its incident response plan, started containment activities, and started working with external partners um, across the government and in the private sector to assist in the response. Most notably, the response included taking all instances of solar winds offline within 24 hours, removing all affected systems from Treasury's network, creating a new cloud system to allow for safe and secure communications within the, the incident response team, and also adding new network defense tools to block malicious activities in the future, attack methods and network traffic similar to what occurred during uh, the compromise. And certainly looking forward, the department is making substantial effort to avoid another hack of this magnitude from happening again. We are incorporating lessons learned from the incident to design and deploy significant enhancements to centralized, coordinated intrusion detection, monitoring, and response systems. We are also incorporating lessons learned from the incident to improve the department's ability to effectively share information with the financial sector. Treasury is what is known as a sector risk management agency for the financial sector, and so we are engaged with the financial services sector to ensure that any adversary threat information is not only used to improve the department's network defense, but is also broadly shared with the sector to help them build resilience across these types of threats. Even beyond sharing threat information, SolarWinds was a game changer for us. It forced us to think differently about how we engage industry, academia, government, and international partners. It has also forced us to think strategically about how to address exploitation of software supply chains by sufficiently resourced criminal and nation state actors. Great. Assistant Secretary Corliss, thank you so much for your service. It's been fantastic to see you take on the leadership role of OIA, which is a remarkable organization made up of great people. Appreciate you being with us and sharing your thoughts on uh, the role of the agency, economics, and intelligence in the intersection of the two. Thank you very much, Manoli. It was a pleasure. Any chance I have to, to talk about OIA, I, I definitely welcome. And this is a great way to, to reach a, a wider audience across the IC. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more about a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.